Glad you're here tonight as we continue in this series called Hot Potatoes, as we tackle controversial issues and we see what the Bible has to say about them. We've tackled a lot of those so far. Tonight will be no different. We're going to tackle one more controversial issue tonight. A few years ago, uh, I taught at an evangelical Christian university in, in Northern California. I taught some theology classes there, and then they asked me if I would come back and teach uh, a Christian ethics class. And I said, sure. And so they gave me the, uh, the syllabus, they gave me some curriculum, uh, the books that were assigned for me to teach out of, to assign some reading from. And as I uh, studied the course and the syllabus, I noted that in this ethics class, there was a unit on social justice. And I thought, well, this is really going to be an interesting class. And I started to read the book that correlated with that unit. And as I read from this assigned text at this Christian university, I was, I was very disturbed at some of the concepts that I found in the pages of that book. Not only what it uh, presented as the underlying reasons for the social justice movement, but also some of the methodology that it advocated and as I was reading this, keep in mind, this is just a few years ago. If you remember what was going on a few years ago, nightly, we were turning on the news to images of various protest demonstrations uh, conducted by groups under the banner of social justice, demonstrations that were very uh, largely described as violent. There was great destruction of property, there was uh, uh, vandalism, there was occupation of public space for indefinite amounts of time, there was looting, there was uh, violence, there was bloodshed. And so it made for some very animated discussions in that class. Not only did we have the visual assault of what we saw on the news that night, but we also uh, had the intellectual assault for those of us who were rather traditional in our, in our Christian upbringing, and we were reading things that seemed to run a little bit counter to what we had been raised to believe. And so as I taught this class, it, uh, it occurred to me that this is a very, very important issue for Christians to get their arms around, to understand uh, this issue, to, un to uncover exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about social justice. I talked to a very sweet lady before the service and she said, I love the Wednesday night deals. And she goes, but you know, you could lay off the politics, Pastor Scott. <laughs> and I said, well, I got a confession to make about tonight's message. And the, the fact of the matter is, I'm not gonna get political on you. What I wanna do above all, we have, we have initiatives that happen in our society that have very noble goals. But I believe it's incumbent upon the people of God to ensure that the methods that are in place to pursue even a noble goal match up with the word of God. You agree? And so that's what we want to do. That's all we want to do. And so I approach this humbly. But what is social justice? Social justice uh, is a term some use to describe the process of accomplishing a more socially just world. And it starts with the recognition that there are indeed some marginalized peoples in our world. That is a fact. And so it seeks ways to improve their situations. And that is the simple, basic summation of that. But if you look at the movement that is associated with that today, there, are, uh, there is a, a, a view that there is widespread human rights inequality and the measures that they advocate for to treat that inequality are generally economic 
in nature. And so they advocate for things like progressive taxation. They advocate for uh, income redistribution sometimes. They even advocate for property redistribution. And all of these are to achieve uh, what they see as an end goal, which is equality of opportunity, that, that no matter who you are, you all get the same opportunity. But some people take it further than that, and they say, we're not just looking for equality of opportunity, we're looking for equality of outcome. And that's a word now that is used uh, called equity. And so that is to say that no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter how hard you work, uh, we should guarantee that everybody has the same outcome. And there are some political philosophies that have adopted that in the past. Uh, but in short, in today's world, even though social justice is a very old concept, what we have been talking about for just the last few years, which has come to dominate that term, it's a word that it's a phrase that sounds wonderful, but but often, even though the goal is noble, it can employ some methods that are questionable. And so I wanted I want to do this. I want to look and see what the Bible says about this because this has become a very big conversation in Christian circles, be it churches or colleges or organizations. And I will say this, what disturbs me is that many religious leaders say that if, if your gospel presentation does not include social justice, you are dispensing an incomplete and flawed gospel. Well, is that true? We shall see tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time together in the word. I pray that you will give us a spirit of humility, of openness, uh, that our ears may be open to what you have to say tonight, God. And I just pray uh, that uh, it will be a productive dialogue and a productive uh, revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to I look today in your notes at how should Christians think about approaches to social justice. Uh, how should we think about social justice? You know, we as Christians, the Bible is clear. We are to live peaceable, God-exalting Christ, honoring lives. We are to treat our fellow man no matter what color their skin may be, no matter what their station in life, no matter what their geographic location, their religion, their background. We should treat them with dignity, with respect, and with love. The Bible tells us in Christ, in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. All are one in Christ. And so really the church is to be a picture of what the world would be ideally, of what the world really can't be apart from Christ. But we are the, the, the kind of snapshot of that because of the way God sees us, the, the unity, the equality that we have in the body of Christ. The biggest problem with regard to social justice that I see as far as Christians, evangelicals, buying into current modern day causes in that realm is that there begins to be a shift in the gospel. What I said a moment ago about some religious leaders saying that if your gospel doesn't have a component of social justice, it's an incomplete gospel. Is that true? Well, what is the gospel? I think you've got to start there. The Apostle Paul is very clear on what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians 15, he defines it. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Folks, that is the gospel. That Jesus died for our sins and that he rose from the dead. There is nothing to add to that. 
You understand. He died to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose to conquer the power of sin. And that and that alone is the gospel. There is no social component, no temporal, no political enterprise that belongs as part of the saving gospel. Anything less than the gospel or added to the gospel is not a saving gospel. It is a gospel that does nothing. And so is that part of the gospel? No. No, and so to make it such taints that message that we are committed to carrying as the body of Christ. What about justice? Is that something that we should be concerned with? Is that important? I believe that it is, absolutely. Because in your notes, in how we should think about these things, first of all, Christians must believe in justice for all. We must believe in justice for all. Here's what Micah 6, 8 says. It says, he, uh, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That is, well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? We're commanded to do justice. It is important. But here's what you must understand in this, this next thing in your notes. In Scripture, there is no social Justice, there is only God's justice. There is only God's justice. Psalm 72, starting in verse 12, it says, For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and uh, him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. You see who is preoccupied with all this? It's God. Justice belongs to God. It was his idea. Who is it that delivers justice in this passage? It is God. As, as Pastor John MacArthur says, justice is not a word that needs an adjective. If you put an adjective in front of a word like justice, you have something else in mind. Justice is justice. Justice is what is right. You understand. Justice is an essential attribute of a holy God. God has essential attributes. And it is a part of his character. It is a part of his very being. God is not merely just. God is justice. It's part of who he is. God is not loving. He is love. Okay? God is not righteous. He is righteousness personified. And so this attribute of God is also mandated by the word of God, the mandates of his word. Exodus 20 says in the, uh, verse 16, that's the ninth commandment. What does it say? It says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Well, that goes to the heart of justice, this attribute of God. And so in your notes, eventually, and this is glorious, eventually God will, will create a place where justice will be perfect and permanent. Are you ready for that? Hey, what's the world like right now? Is it, is it perfect? Oh, far from it. Far from it. Uh, is what we see permanent? Well, I should hope not. It's getting worse and worse and worse all the time. If we could just lock it in and keep it from getting worse, that'd be one thing. But one day it will be perfect and that perfection will be permanent. When? Isaiah 65, 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. There's some things about this world we are not gonna wanna remember, amen? 
And so he will see to it that we do not because it will be perfect and it will be permanent. But when we talk about social justice in the public forum today, it's a brand of justice, and I say that in quotations, uh, that is not the divine attribute of justice, nor is it marked by other attributes like kindness, like humility. And I will explain this as we go tonight. But as I said, it's a very, very big issue uh, in the evangelical church. Sometimes there, are social, sometimes there are social issues that come into the church and we become preoccupied with those issues and we talk about them a lot. And, and it's possible that when that happens, the church can feel pressure from the world to adopt the vernacular that surrounds that issue, to adopt the terms and the values that often accompany discussion of that issue And these are terms and values that originate not in the word of God, but in the world and in the culture. And my friends, that's a disastrous habit for the church to have. When we begin to talk about an issue that may have some importance, but we adopt the framing of that issue, the terminology and the values that the world has created to surround that issue, that should be a non-starter. And so we're going to look at some of these terms Though, though what we know about, about true justice has got to come from God's word, I do think it's helpful that we understand what the world is talking about when it utters some of this stuff. Now, we are familiar with racism. We know what racism is. Uh, does that exist in our world today? Absolutely it does. Has for a long, long time. This is a definition of racism by someone I deeply respect, Dr. Tony Evans. Uh, he says that racism is the conscious or unconscious belief in the superiority of one's race over and against another race. Now just stopping right there, you'll note that he does not identify one race as being guilty of racism. It is the feeling of superiority of one's race, no matter what your race may be. If your position is that your race, whichever race that is, is superior to another race, That, he says, is racism. He goes on, he says, that feeling or belief gets manifested in the use of power, influence, resources, or even communication that seeks to reject, marginalize, or even oppress people of another race, color, or ethnicity. That's Dr. Tony Evans. So that's racism. But then we've heard about another another term that that has that word in it, but it's a a two-word term, and the term is systemic racism. Systemic racism, what is that? Well, that has been defined uh, as the presence of racism, which we've just defined, being embedded into the structures of society, be they political, economic, legal, medical, or related to, to employment, related to housing. And the idea is that it's become ingrained, it's become part of the policies and the procedures of, of the way a particular entity operates. This can be in a government, could be in a nation, could be in a business. You understand? And so this is the notion about systemic racism. Now, historically, is there, has there been systemic racism in America? Well, I think the answer to that is yes. I think slavery is the most obvious example of systemic racism. Surely we have experienced systemic racism in America. People were oppressed because of the color of their skin. 
Even after the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, it still went on. You see that uh, there were black people who'd committed very minor infractions that must remain under the control of their masters even after emancipation. So has it existed? Yes. Does it exist today? Does racism exist today? Individually? Yes. What about systemically? Well, I think that the case can certainly be made for that. Uh, Now, you can make that argument. We're not going to make that argument tonight. Um, It's not the purpose of this message. Uh, I will say that if you make that argument, you must acknowledge that there are other systems in place as well that work counter to racism. And we know that because we know about the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. We know about the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Education. We know about the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs. We know about the FBI, state civil rights commissions, local human rights commissions, state attorneys general, tens of thousands of investigators, enforcement compliance officers. We've got local prosecutors. We've got private attorneys who who enforce a sprawling framework of civil rights and equal opportunity laws. Those laws come out of the uh, uh, Title VII, 1964 Civil Rights Act. Prior to that, way back in the 1800s, Civil Rights Act of 1866, 1871, you got the 14th Amendment, 15th Amendment, Fair Housing Act, Voting Rights Act, thousands of of state, local, uh, equal opportunity, anti-discrimination laws. So all of that is on the books. All of that is in place structurally. Why do we still have a problem? If it's systemic, because it's a deeper problem than that. It's a deeper problem with that. Because those systems don't matter if they're not rooted in a Christian worldview. Okay? If they do not, the problem ultimately will not be overcome. What were the strongest voices in support of abolition of slavery back in the Civil War era, they were evangelical Christian voices. Those were absolutely the strongest voices that fought for the freedom of of slaves. So what does the Bible say? When we talk about systemic racism, what are we talking about? I will say this. The phrase systemic racism is not in Scripture. Either word, in fact. Now, The Bible does deal with concepts of racism. It deals with racial equality. It deals with injustice. It deals with oppression. Uh, The ideals of the Bible are the foundation that would oppose systemic racism were it to exist. So the, the foundation of the word of God would have run contrary to the first century world, especially in Israel, because there indeed was systemic racism in Israel. Uh, Gentiles were not allowed on the Temple Mount, for Pete's sake, or at least not on the Temple grounds. And so part of that was the culture and the system that they operated under. But here's what I want you to see in your notes. The Bible does not address systems of racism. It addresses racism. Because the root of the problem is not the system, but the human condition. That is the root of the problem. Here's what James 2 says, verse 1, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith 
in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. In Genesis 1.27, we've got this remarkable statement that says we were created in the image of God. I'm going to revisit that in a bit. In Zechariah 7.10, it says, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner. That's someone from another country and presumably another ethnicity. Or the poor, let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. John 7.24, do not judge by appearances, i.e., your uh, someone's melanin level, okay? As, as one of my old college, my favorite bands from my college days, DC Talk once sang, uh, pardon me, your epidermis is showing, sir. <laughs> All right? And so we don't judge by appearance. You can appreciate the, the rich melanin that God has given people and appreciate it for the beauty that is there, but we don't, we don't see the, the uh, inherent value or lack of value because of the color of their skin. Uh, and so what, ab- what about what we see in America? How are we to deal with some of the issues? Well, I-, I could tell you how we don't deal with it. We don't deal with it with violence. We don't deal with it with disruption of social structures. We don't deal with it by burning buildings. We don't deal with it by throwing things. We don't deal with it by stealing we don't deal with it by, by really just disrupting the fabric of society and making destruction our goal. Why? Proverbs 29.8 says, Scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. The wise turn away wrath. Romans 13, one through seven, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. God. And so there are very clear directives, especially as to how Christians should conduct themselves. Uh, but I want to go over a few more terms. As you engage in, in a conversation or the debate about social justice, there are terms that you will encounter. And I think it's beneficial that you know what they are. And I have put them in your notes so you don't have to write them down. You're welcome. You're welcome. Because that's a lot. And it allows me to not have to read all of them. But I do want to talk about some of them. Uh, the first one is hegemony. Hegemony. Now, that is not the name of the cricket in Pinocchio. All right? Hegemony. It is one dominant social class imposing its ideology on the rest of society. That is the term that, that uh, the progressive, I would say, contingency in the social justice movement uses. Hegemony. So when you hear that, you'll know what they mean. Uh, look, look down at white privilege. You hear that a lot. A series of un earned advantages that accrue to white people. You can look at how whiteness is described, which is not really about skin color, has to do with, uh, 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 has to do with uh, an ideology that the social justice crowd alleges uh, has been created for the purpose of this privilege. And so that just means that whiteness was established to create or preserve white privilege. That's the concept there. Uh, white supremacy, man, you hear that one a lot right now. Uh, just defined by, by that uh, contingency is any belief, behavior, or system that supports, promotes, or enhances privilege. And so the idea here is that you don't, you don't, you know, somebody calls you a white supremacist, your, your first thought is, well, now wait a minute, well, I'm not a white supremacist. And their, their comeback will be, you don't have to be a member of the KKK. You don't have to, you know, have a sheet and a hood hanging in your closet. You don't have to have burned a cross on somebody's lawn to be a white supremacist. You just have to be part of a system to be a white supremacist. And if you're in that system, you practice white supremacy. One of my favorite authors and, and Bible teachers is, a, uh, is an incredible man named Vodi Bauckham. 
Uh, Vodibakum, uh, he, he was born in Los Angeles uh, to a single black mother uh, who, was, who happened to be a Buddhist, by the way. And God saved him, and he, he surrendered his life to the ministry. Uh, he now lives in, I, I believe, Zambia. I think he started a Bible school in Zambia, and he wrote a book about this subject matter called Fault Lines. Here's what he says. He says that this position of uh, you don't have to be a, uh, an active uh, uh, participant in something like the KKK to be a white supremacist. You don't even have to believe that your race is superior to another race to be a white supremacist. You just have to be in the system. Bauckham calls that allegation racism without a racist. That's what he calls it. And he says the use of these terms are, are they're, in, they're utilized in a reinvented way that allows the progressives and the left to paint with a broad brush and shame others into their way of thinking because who wants to be called something like this? Nobody, nobody. It's almost like that redefinition of, of Romans 5.12, which says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's as though they take that and they take the sin mentioned in that verse and they say, uh, that sin is, is uh, a white supremacy. And therefore, because white supremacy did exist, you're in the system it created, therefore you are a white supremacist. It's a total... Uh, it's a total redefinition of the word of God in that capacity. You got white complicity defined as white people through the practices of whiteness and by benefiting from white privilege contribute to the maintenance of systemic racial injustice. There's a Christian figure, and I use that term loosely. He's the founder of a, an organization called Sojourners. His name is Jim Wallace. He's a progressive. He's on the left. Here's what he says. Listen to this. He says, without Without confession to the sin of white racism, white supremacy, white privilege, people who call themselves white Christians will never be free from the bondage of a lie, a myth, an ideology, and an idol. Unless you confess, if you're a white Christian, unless you confess that you are a racist uh, a white supremacist who engages in white privilege, unless you confess that and repent of that, you will never be free. What does the Bible say to that? Well, Romans 8, 2 says, for the law of the spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. John 8, 36 says, if the son has set you free, you will be free indeed. And I would echo Vodibakum once again here who says that in this uh, obsessed culture in, in what he considers to be the social justice cult there is no freedom you are inherently racist and you cannot escape that you cannot escape that skip down to the, the one of the second to last there white fragility this is the title of a, a best selling book by a, by a white woman in fact Robin D'Angelo White fragility is defined as the inability and unwillingness of white people to talk about race due to the grip that whiteness, white supremacy, white privilege, white complicity, and white equilibrium exert on them knowingly or unknowingly. Wow. It's kind of like, man, we got you from all sides. We, we've surrounded you. Uh, it's a gotcha, you see. 
Uh, it's a Kafka trap is what they call this. If you deny guilt, that's just proof of guilt. That's just proof. So, so the claim is, you know, you've got white privilege and you're complicit in white supremacy. And your response would be, well, that's not true. And you might give a reason why. And then they would come back and say, well, that's just your white uh, fragility talking. And you're just trying to cling to your privilege. And so Vody Bakum says this. He says, basically, it's, you're a racist. No, I'm not. That's exactly what a racist would say. It's a gotcha. And so under this, anything less than admitting, acknowledging, repenting of, and working to undo racism in your own life is evidence of white fragility. And that is the concept here. And so these are some of the terms that are used. And churches are embracing and utilizing these terms. And in the social justice conversation, there is something called critical race theory. Uh, critical race theory, we'll, we'll call it CRT just because I don't want to say all three of those words every time I talk about it. So I may just call it CRT. But there's a big debate in evangelical circles right now about CRT. And the argument is that churches and ministries should care about the oppressed because God cares about the oppressed. CRT is all about eliminating, uh, eliminating oppression. And so we must, Christians, we must embrace CRT. And CRT is defined this way, and it's already written in your notes. Critical race theory, the view that the law and legal institutions are inherently racist and that race itself, instead of being, pay attention here, instead of being biologically grounded, wait, what? (laughs) Race itself, instead of being biologically grounded and natural, is a socially constructed concept used by white people to further their economic and political interests at the expense of people of color. That's straight out of Encyclopedia Britannica. So where did this thing called critical race theory come from? Well, it's born out of something much, much older called critical theory. You just take the word race out and you got critical theory. Uh, Earlier than that, it was called conflict theory and it really was conceived in the mind of a man named Karl Marx. Karl Marx. Karl Marx was the father of communism. Uh, He is by far the most influential atheist in history. Here's a quote attributed to Marx. He says, "My, my object in life is to dethrone God and destroy capitalism. Those were his two two goals. And he hated religion. He spewed vitriol at religion his entire life. And he wrote something called the Communist Manifesto. And in that, he called for the destruction of religion, capitalism, personal property, countries, countries, even the family, the family, uh, all in the name of an order of a classless society. That was his dream, that there were no classes, that we were all the same in terms of class and outcome, okay? And so Marx left this legacy. He died after World War I. The followers of Marx, they were Marxists. They salivated at the thought of what the next stage in human history would be. Uh, Marxists and communists believe that it comes in stages. And so first you had feudalism. Feudalism gave way uh, to mercantilism. And uh, mercantilism had given way to capitalism. And so they're like, well, we're, we, we just ended a world war, the, the great war, the war to end all wars. Surely there's a new stage on the horizon and capitalism is going to give way naturally to communism 
fulfilling the Marxist dream. And it had already kind of done that in Russia. Uh, Marx uh, was from Germany. That was his homeland. And so they assumed that it would happen in Germany. And so he had a lot of followers in Germany. Well, it never happened in, in that, that part of Germany. That was largely a capitalist nation. But you had intellectual elites that were Mark, Marxist in their thinking. And so they relied on the teachings of Marx. They founded something called the Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt, Germany. We call it the Frankfurt School. The Frank, Frankfurt, if you're from there. Uh, and at this school, the, the most notable thing to come out of the Frankfurt School was critical theory. And what critical theory did is it, it, it came out of Marxist conflict theory and it promoted class awareness. It emphasized class awareness for the purpose of uniting people from all these oppressed classes into one uh, conglomerate to respond against oppressive groups. And so the rallying cry of Marx was workers of the world unite. Okay, that is the great communist cry. Workers of the world. In other words, workers, all you laborers, come together. You who are oppressed and we will fight against the man and we will overcome the oppressor. We'll overcome those in power above us and we will achieve utopia in the form of this classless society. And so in an earthly sense, critical theory has as its father, Karl Marx, in the spiritual sense, critical theory has as its father, Satan. Because the original critic is Lucifer. Lucifer, the angelic name of Satan originally, what did he say? I will be like the most. I was born out of a critical spirit that says, I, I, I deserve more than I have. I will not stay in my lane. I will not stay in my place. I must rise above this oppressive God. I will be like the most high. I will rise above the stars. And we know the rest of that story. And what did he do? He was kicked out of heaven. Who went with him? We know from scripture, a third of the angelic population of heaven went with him. He united all the seemingly oppressed of heaven. And so you have that same spirit. And now the latest iteration of all this in our community, in our society, is called critical race theory because they've centered in on the thing that is most divisive in our world today, race. And so I want to show you two primary claims of CRT. Here's what it is. Number one, everyone can be divided into two groups. In your notes, those with power and those without. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is that those with power are the oppressors. Okay, those who don't have power are always oppressed by them. Okay, so you get two groups of people, those with power, those without, the oppressors and the oppressed. And, and the people with power absolutely without fail are hardwired to oppress the people without power. That is CRT. That's what it teaches. And it's straight out of Karl Marx. Okay, and so the natural question is, well, how do you know who's got power and who doesn't? Aha, in your notes, CRT says those categories are predicated on your group identity. What does that mean? That means that just like Karl Marx liked to identify people in various classes in order to unite them for this classless utopian dream, CRT wants people to identify with particular groups of oppression, okay? And so... 
what, what group identities are there? You got race, you got gender, you got gender identity, you got sexual orientation, you got religion, you got immigration status, you got income, you got disability, you got nationality. That's just, a, that's just a smattering. There is an endless, infinite supply of these group identities with whom you can identify. And, and the groups that you identify determine whether you are an oppressor or an oppressed person. And just that much information, if you've got any wisdom at all, you can see this is going somewhere not good. When you divide people like this, this is not unifying people, this is dividing people, okay? And I would say that in this framework, it is possible to identify with both an oppressive group and an oppressed group. You could be oppressed in one sense and you can be an oppressor in another sense. Enter the concept of intersectionality. Here's how intersectionality works in your notes. What is that, intersectionality? Intersectionality is how you measure one's level of oppression based on how many of these groups you identify with. Okay? It's how you measure it. Now, I'm gonna show you an image on the screen up here, okay? Here, here's the image I wanna show you. You see these bubbles? They've all got a label. These are all group identities. And you can see them there. You got ethnicity, you got sexual orientation, you got, uh, you got race, of course, you got gender expression, you got nationality, you got religion, you got all of these group identities and you would identify with one or more, probably more groups uh, depending on, on your station of life and where you are and who you, who, you know, who you are, where you come from and all that. Okay, so we can go ahead and take that image down. That's just an example. That is not an exhaustive list of all of the group identities, but here's what I want you to see, and you can jot this down. It's not in your notes. It's worth noting. The more categories that you identify with, the more oppressed you are, okay? The more categories you identify, the more oppressed you are. Example, a black man is oppressed, okay? But not as much as a black woman because she checks two boxes, the black man, ethnicity is his oppressed group identity, but he's a man. If you're a black woman, that's two oppressed group identities. But a black woman is not as oppressed as a half black, half Asian lesbian. And a half black, half Asian lesbian is not as oppressed as a half black, half Asian transgendered person. And a half black, half Asian transgendered person is not as oppressed as a half black, half Asian transgendered person in a third world country. Who is not as oppressed as a half black, half Asian transgendered person in a third world country who happens to be the minority religion in that country, you see. And you can go on ad nauseum, ad infinitum in these levels of oppression. And then there's this, the degree to which you are oppressed determines your level of, and I'd write this down, your level of moral authority. In other words, the more intersectionality, the more these bubbles intersect, the greater your moral authority. The more groups or categories of oppression someone identifies with, the more moral authority they have. And that is why in social media circles, whenever there is an exchange about some kind of hot button issue, and let's say someone is taking a, a more traditional stand, perhaps a more conservative stand, uh, the progressive might shout at them online to say, uh, that's just your privilege talking, sit down, have a seat. Because you, you don't have a right 
to have a voice on this matter because you don't have any authority based on the fact that you're speaking out of a place of privilege. And that's how that works. Because if you are regarded as an oppressor, meaning you have privilege, you have no moral authority, you have no voice in this circle. Uh, and and so, so the perspective of a multi-ethnic uh, queer individual is worth a whole lot more than somebody who, you know, well, you know, looks like me, all right? And the more I would add this, the more oppressed someone is, the less moral responsibility they have. The more oppressed you are, the more oppressed you are, the more your moral authority grows, but your moral responsibility decreases, you see, and that is why it, it, general rules of, of, of civil conduct can be ignored by certain people in, in, uh, in certain instances whenever, whenever there's a protest, like a, one of the protests that we saw over the last three, four years in the name of social justice, when buildings are burning, when stores are being looted, when people are being uh, uh, beaten and vandalized and such, uh, it, it might be regarded by people with this view as okay because that is the language of the oppressed. And so they, they, they don't bear as much moral responsibility because of the, the, the level of oppression that they endure. And so if you're not in an oppressed group, uh, and I, the least oppressed would be white males, how do you, straight white males, how do you gain moral authority? Can you gain moral authority? Well, presumably, that can happen because I see white people in the social justice movement. The author of that White Fragility book, for example, Robin DeAngelo, is a white woman. Uh, the textbook that I read when I taught that class on Christian ethics that was very progressive was a white dude from Oregon. He was a pastor. Okay, so, so how do you gain moral authority if you don't check these boxes? And uh, the unoppressed, I would say, gain moral authority through surrender to the oppressed. I'm just helping you understand how the system works, okay? I'm gonna get in, don't, you're like, Pastor Scott, where's the Bible coming to this? You'll see, you'll see. If you are an oppressive group, you gain moral authority through surrender to the oppressed or becoming what is commonly called, here's a word you might have known or heard recently, woke. You become woke. What does that mean? Woke is to have the recognition of all that intersectionality teaches about people of accepted oppressed status as well as the owning of one's own oppressive role and responsibility. That is wokeness, okay? And so is this biblical is the big question. What would the Bible comment on this? Because the claim is Jesus cared about the oppressed. Christians, therefore, since critical theory, critical race theory cares about the oppressed, we should embrace CRT. Well, I'm gonna show you as we wind this down, CRT and intersectionality are incompatible with the Christian view of three things. And the first thing in your notes is humanity. They're incompatible because they have different views of humanity. What does Christianity teach about humanity? What does it teach about people? Clearly, the Bible teaches that man was made in God's image. Genesis 1:27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. I notice a couple things here. First of all, the word man 
is not gender specific here. That is a general term. That is Adam. It means the race of, of humanity. All right? So all genders, uh, all human beings come under that umbrella of man in Genesis 1.27. He does, however, go on to delineate male and female. He created them. So what does that tell you? Uh, there are two genders and only two. Okay? And, and so that all fits under the. But the most important thing in that verse is that we are created originally as a people in the image of God. It's, it's the Latin phrase, imago Dei. And your value, all your identity and value is predicated on the fact that you were created originally in the form of Adam and Eve in the image of a holy God. There's no other living creature on earth that can make that claim, including angels. Only people. So human life is precious because we were originally made in the image of God. CRT does not teach that. It does not teach that your value comes from being made in the image of God. CRT teaches, uh, well, first of all, it, it, it doesn't affirm our, our identity and value comes from being in a divine image. It's based, rather, on things like race. That's your value is in your race. It's, it's in your melanin count. It's in your culture. Uh, it's based on uh, uh, gender. It's based on gender identity. It's based on gender expression. It's based on sexual orientation. All those bubbles from intersectionality, that's where you get your value. So you see, the more, the more bubbles you find yourself identifying with, more value you have. It has nothing to do with the image of God. And so that's what, what we see as a difference. The Bible, I would add this under that heading, is that the Bible teaches that we are all equal before God. We were created equal. We are equally valued. You guys believe that? All people are valuable to God. So we've got equality there. We are equally guilty of sin, right? We are equally deserving of punishment because of that sin. And yet we have all of us equal access to grace and mercy in Jesus. Glad about that? I'm glad about that. What does CRT say? CRT and intersectionality. They don't, they don't buy into that. They pit groups of people against one another. There is no equality. Not really. For all of the talk about equality and equity, there really is no equality because they pit groups against one another based on their status as oppressors or oppressed. So there's, there's no equality. There is a systemic inequality that, that, that causes this divide. And so they get it wrong, humanity. The second thing they get wrong is sin. They're incompatible because of the difference in the views of sin. According to Christianity, what is sin? Sin is anything that man does to violate God's declared design for humanity. By the way, that includes oppressing people, which man is certainly capable of and has done. But what is sin? First John defines it. Uh, chapter three, verse four. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Who created the law? It's God's law. Therefore, disobedience to the precepts of God is sin. That is what defines sin. It, was, it originated in the Garden of Eden. You shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the day that you eat of it, you will die. They disobeyed. Therefore, sin entered the world. That was the definition and the origin of sin. CRT, the only thing resembling sin is oppression. That's it. 
There is no other recognition of anything else as wrong, as sinful, and furthermore, the only people guilty of oppressing are those who are associated with identified power structures, people with power, which means that if you are oppressed, if you do not have power, you are incapable of the only sin they recognize, okay? And so we have a problem. Whoever is regarded as oppressed is incapable of wrongdoing. The Bible, under this header, puts into place corrective measures to deal with and to guide people out of sinful behavior, Okay, this is how we experience liberation from Christ liberates us by grace through faith. And then we obediently, by the power of the spirit, follow the precepts and the practices and the corrective measures in the word of God to be guided out of those lifestyles. And those include discipleship, correction, leadership, reproof. Where do you, where do you hear that stuff? You come here. You, you go to your Bible studies, you hear it from the word of God, okay? Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 tells us all scripture is given by God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for, for instruction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, perfect and thoroughly equipped for every good work. What does CRT say? Biblical practices like discipleship, correction, leadership, reproof, according to CRT, they are themselves sinful. If <laughs> the speaker or the one imparting that is from an oppressor group. Okay? So right now, theoretically, according to CRT, I am oppressing some of you based on this ideology. I, I'm downright arrogant being up here with all of my privilege and everything, speaking out of the, the word of God. How domineering of me to do so, to try to impart uh, some form of instruction. Where do I get off? The Bible says that we are all guilty before God, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of social status or income. One of the many ways that humanity is, is, is a rebel against God is through oppressing other people. We acknowledge that. Romans 5.12 says we've all sinned, right? It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin of Adam started with him. We inherited it, that nature. His sin was imputed to us, so we have his guilt. And we are culpable. It's a concept called the headship, the federal headship view of sin. And so would we have been in his place? We would have done the same thing. He is just representative of we as a people. And so we, are, we have equality in guilt. We have equality and guilt. What does Acts 10 say? Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, you know what the Greek word for nation is? Ethnos. Every ethnic group. In every ethnic group, anyone, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So yes, we have equality in guilt, but bless God, we've got equality in access to forgiveness and acceptance by a loving God. Amen? But according to CRT, sins like jealousy, anger, hatred, bitterness, unforgiveness, envy, greed, sometimes even violence, all of that is excused 
as long as the people doing it are themselves oppressed. That's the ideology. Now, as you can see, there's a lot CRT gets wrong. I mean, it's, it's way, way off as far as diagnosing humanity's core problem. Uh, what it does is it identifies a symptom of the core problem. The end goal for a lot of people who are interested in social justice, the end goal is a noble goal. They want, they want equality of human rights. I can't say a bad thing about that. I would never. But how are we pursuing that according to this ideology? What they're doing is identifying a symptom of the core problem as the totality of the problem. And since CRT doesn't get the symptom, uh, or excuse me, gets the, 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 the problem wrong, they get the problem wrong, they get the solution wrong too. If you get the problem, you ever go to the doctor and get, get misdiagnosed? And he prescribes something and it doesn't help your real problem because he doesn't know what the real problem is. Same problem here. And so that means that number three in your notes, there's a difference in the view of salvation. In the view of salvation. What does Christianity teach about salvation? Well, it says that since we're all equally guilty before God, we get one hope. We get one hope for all mankind. One and only one. There is one name under heaven by which men are saved. One name and one only uh, to be forgiven of our sin by God through the power of Jesus Christ and faith in his sacrifice. That is the only hope we've got. Acts 4.12, uh, uh, only one name is what it says. But according to CRT, because the oppressors are guilty and the oppressed are not, salvation has nothing to do with faith. It has to do with social liberation right here, right now. It is truly built around a social gospel. Repentance, any notion of, of eternal salvation because of a substitutionary sacrifice, not a thing. The only hope for anyone in this world is activism. And it's kind of ironic because the social liberation kind of has to come from the oppressors who caused the problem in the first place, according to this view. And the beneficiary of that social liberation are the oppressed. That is their salvation for whatever that's worth. What about, what about the oppressors? Is there any notion of salvation for them? The people who don't check the right boxes. Their only hope is to do the work, to do the work of admitting inherent guilt, acknowledging their privilege, acknowledging their culpability, as an oppressor, diminishing their own voice, elevating the voices of others, and essentially what we have here is a works-based salvation. You earn favor, you earn grace. You can't earn grace. You can't earn grace. And by the way, even this never really absolves you of anything because you still are what you are till you die. And the last thing I want to say to sum it all up, to tie it up with a bow here in your notes, is that when the world's prescriptions run counter to God's word, there's never any lasting solution. There's never any lasting solution. And that's why we're talking about this. We're not trying to create more division. The division is there. We're trying to give everybody the right perspective because the only thing that we can rely on is the word of God. 
It is our true north. It is our compass. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no hope in any legislation. There is no hope in any political party. There is no hope in the election of a particular politician or the elevation of one people over another. There will always be an oppressed people. Jesus said, the poor you will always have among you. So there are always groups that undergo hardship. But here's what he says in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And promoting a false solution like critical theory is like releasing pythons into the Everglades to try to take out the alligators. All you end up with is a mess of very hungry pythons. And so we combat strongholds like this because they don't originate with God. They don't originate in his word. They are snakes out of the pit of hell. And we know that the only truth, the only hope for people of any ethnicity, any color, any background, any station in life, any creed, is Jesus Christ and him alone. Amen? Amen. Let's bow. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of grace that we are equally uh, able to receive, all of us, God, because we stand uh, on level ground at the foot of the cross. My need is the same as the need of every other person in this room. We need Jesus. And we know that men cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace, but you are the Prince of Peace. And so may we, the church of Jesus Christ, model what real unity, real equality, real sameness looks like to the world. And it's something that can only be found through the bond of peace that you made possible at Calvary. I ask your blessing upon these people. Thank you for their deep hunger and ravenous uh, appetite for the word of God. May you bless each and every one of them. Help us to love one another as you love us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.